Good morning, everyone. Um, so we're starting a new series this morning uh, called Practicing the Way of Jesus. I'll just move this mic out of the way. And I'll see if my clicker is working in a minute. So I'm really excited about this series. Uh, It's been one I've been thinking about and uh, pressing into for a long time. And I'm very grateful to a guy called John Mark Comer. He is a pastor and teacher from the west coast of the U.S. um, who's really helped bring structure and language and clarity to this for me in a way that I didn't have before. So through this series, I'm going to unashamedly be drawing from uh, his thinking as well as from other Christian thinkers and writers and, of course, basing it all on Scripture, the Bible, our only rule of faith and practice. So when I arrived in London in 1998, anybody remember 1998? Anybody around then? A few. Um, So I remember meeting up with a friend, a guy called Andy, and and wrestling with how to, as Brother Lawrence put it, practice the presence of God. And over my 12 years on the leadership team of this church, I've often thought about how do we help the church family, so including me, all of us together, move on in our faith and grow in our faith, whether we've been following Jesus for a week or a year or 40 years like me or some of you maybe 70 or more years. How do we help us all grow closer to Jesus, to grow in our holiness, to be more effective for the kingdom of God? So if you've got a Bible with you, let's see if this works. Does it? No, it's not quite yet. Um, can Guys, can you flip forward one? I'll, I'll try and see if we can get it to work. Um, uh, if you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Um, so I'd be surprised if there's anyone here um, lis- or listening who doesn't know of Jesus. Um, We all have an image of Jesus, don't we? It might not be a picture of who he looks like, but, but, but maybe a mental image of who he is, an idea of who he is. But if you lived in first century Palestine and you rocked up to synagogue one Sabbath morning... And Jesus happened to be there and, and, and speaking. The category you'd have probably put Jesus into is that of a traveling, traveling rabbi. Let's see if this works. No, guys, if you can just jump forward. Um, yeah, it is. Oh, fantastic. So rabbi is a Hebrew word meaning master or teacher. And in the early first century, uh, a rabbi would travel from town to town with his yoke. And if you can see the picture, that's maybe the image you have of yoke. But actually, it's not a piece of farm equipment in this context. Uh, A yoke was a first century euphemism for a set of teachings uh, from a rabbi. So the rabbi's interpretation of the Torah, uh, the Jewish scriptures, that he would set out and live out. A guy called Ray Vanderbilt Lana, he's an ordained minister and a longtime student of Jewish culture. He says, rabbis invited people to learn to keep the Torah. And this was called taking the yoke of the Torah. And of the 90 or so times that Jesus was addressed in the Gospels, nearly two-thirds of these uh, he's addressed as rabbi or teacher. So let's jump to Mark chapter 1 and read from verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into a lake, for they were fishermen. Kind of sounds obvious. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So jump ahead to Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. He was a rabbi, a teacher. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed Jesus. Uh, Skip ahead or or swipe ahead to the chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then if you can skip ahead a few chapters to Mark chapter 8, we'll read from verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Did you see the pattern in these passages? The call of Jesus was not for people to become Christians. The term wasn't even invented until many years after Jesus had died on the cross. The call of Jesus wasn't just to believe that he existed. Well, in in, in that, that context, he was right there in front of him. That wouldn't have made sense. The call of Jesus was simply to come and follow me or to come and be my disciple. So we need to do a quick history lesson here. And if you're not into history, apologies, but just bear with me for a few minutes. Here's how the education system worked in first century Galilee. So schools were associated with the local synagogue. And apparently each community would hire a teacher respectfully called a rabbi for the school. And children began their studies at about age four to five uh, in what was called Beth Sefer, so equivalent to our primary school. And most scholars believe both boys and girls attended a class in the synagogue. And it focused on the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And by the time this education was finished, maybe about 12 years old or so, um, a lot of the pupils would know the Torah by heart. So imagine Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, <laughs> and Deuteronomy by heart. And at this point, the girls uh, would leave and either get married or, or go back to their home, and the boys would apprentice with their father to learn the, the family trade. It was the first century. Um, but the best students, and, and typically only boys, would continue their study Um, often while learning a trade on the side, um, at what was called Beth Midrash, which was the equivalent of secondary school, also taught by a rabbi of the community. And here, along with men of the town, they studied the prophets, the writings, and began to look at the interpretation of the Torah. And many of them would know pretty much the entire Old Testament by heart by the end of this time. And then they would effectively graduate and join the family trade. But the very best of the best, just a, few, uh, just a few students would seek permission to uh, study with a famous rabbi. And these students were called Talmudim. And I've copied in the Hebrew. It's interesting when you copy Hebrew into text because I was trying to move my cursor right, but it was moving left because Hebrew goes the other way. Um, 
So this, we normally translate disciples, but actually in our culture today, it's maybe better translated as apprentices. And uh, this is a little bit like training with Liverpool, or sorry, Nathan, maybe Chelsea, um, because a lot of people might want to do it, but very few people actually get let in. So um, the rabbi would grill his potential Talmudim on their knowledge of the scripture, their interpretation of scripture, uh, their, their work ethic, how they lived things out. Um, because it was a big commitment to be a Talmud. Uh, it often meant leaving home to travel with the rabbi for a lengthy period of time. And there's much more to a Talmud than what we call a student. Here's what Ray says. A student wants to know what their teacher knows in order to to, to pass the class, to get the grade, or maybe even just out of respect for the teacher. But a Talmud wants to be like the teacher. That is, to become what the teacher is. This meant that the students were passionately devoted to the rabbi and noted everything he did and said, as the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scripture to his students, the Talmudim, they listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. And eventually they would become teachers passing on a lifestyle to their Talmudim. So what did a first century Talmud or disciple or, or better translation apprentice aim to do? Well, the first thing is to be with their rabbi. And this was literal. They would hang out with him. When Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't just using a figure of speech. They would just follow him around. They would go where he went. It wasn't a nine to five gig. You know, they didn't say, right, Jesus is five o'clock. I'm, I'm off home from a dinner with my family. Actually, they stayed with him 24-7, everywhere, every day. John Mark Comer says there was a popular Hebrew blessing in the first century that went something like, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. So maybe you can picture in your mind, you know, the first century dusty Palestinian rose. And, and if you've had a good day, if you've been blessed, at the end of the day, you're going to be covered by the dust of your rabbi because you've got to follow him everywhere. So a Talmud needed to be with his rabbi. Second, a Talmud needed to become like their rabbi. Their goal was to be the carbon copy of their rabbi. So they copied every move. They copied mannerisms. They copied dress. I mean, that's so foreign to us, isn't it? We, we live in such an individualistic society. It's all about, you know, you're unique, you're special, be you. I mean, my boys wouldn't even dream of wanting to be like their teacher. Certainly not how they dress or their mannerisms or so on. Um, but that was the goal of a Talmud. And the third thing was to do what their rabbi did. The hope of every Talmud was that after a period of time, it might be three years or five years or whatever, that the, the rabbi would say, your turn. Go and make disciples. And then you get to do what your rabbi does. And that was one of the reasons rabbis were very careful about who they selected, who they let in, because they needed to know that their Talmudim had the potential to do what they did. So, history lesson over. Let's teleport then from first century Palestine to 2020 in uh, Hizmir area, three counties area. How does this relate to us? 
The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to discipleship. It's not following Jesus on Instagram. Hey, Jesus, love the pictures. It's not just believing he exists. It's not kind of inviting him in to help you out whenever you get stuck just on the odd occasion. It's to become his Talmudine. So what does it mean to apprentice yourself under Jesus, so to follow him? Well, it simply means that you order your life around the same three goals of the the Talmud in the first century. So you aim to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So let's jump into these. So first, to be with Jesus. You might say, well, that was easy for the disciples. You know, they had Jesus around. They could see him. They could just, like, follow him. We, we can't literally be covered in the dust of Jesus because he's not here in person. So how can we be with Jesus? Well, John Mark Comer explains that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is what it's all about. For me growing up, um, this started with the quiet time. Any other children of the 80s Christian culture here? Yeah. Um, So I used to do my quest notes or keynotes or young persons every day with Jesus. Um, And if you haven't come across those things, there's normally a short reading, a thought about it, and a prayer. Um, And sometimes when I was super keen, I would do them in the evening as well as the morning. And if it was a particular good day, in the evening I'd actually remember what I read in the morning because I I was vaguely conscious. Often I wasn't vaguely conscious. And it did become a habit. So just as I brushed my teeth every morning, I'd also just spend a few minutes uh, with Jesus uh, doing that quiet time. Um, And spending time with Jesus was good. If you're doing a quiet time now, then good on you. Well done. Keep it up. Um, If you're not, it's something you might consider. There's lots of good material out there. Pete Gregg has his Lexio 365. Um, Nicky Gumbel has his Bible in one year, so it's a bit longer, but you actually go through the whole Bible in one year which is wonderful. Um, And if you want something shorter, actually the Bible app has a little story thing that just jumps into the verse of the day, which is also brilliant. So it's life-giving to connect with Jesus every day in that way. But soon, probably in my mid-late teens, I realized that that wasn't enough. I actually needed to be with Jesus the whole day, not just a little bit at the beginning or a little bit at the end and as I said at the beginning, when I arrived in, my, in London, my friend and I, Andy and I were wrestling with this. Um, Brother Lawrence was one of our inspirations, and uh, I've mentioned him before. One of his famous quotes is this, the time of business does not for me differ from the time of prayer. So he was actually a cook. We'll, we'll look at him a bit more next week. But, you know, he was able to be as close to Jesus when he was just going about his daily life with all the stress and so on of that as he was when he was in concentration in prayer. He was able to be aware of and connected to the Holy Spirit at all times. Dallas Willard, the great Christian philosopher and thinker, says this, and it's a little bit dense, so I'll, I'll read it slightly slower. The first and most basic thing we can and must do 
is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God, see the little reference to Brother Lawrence there, is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early years of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. Anybody experience that? But these are habits, not the law of of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. And maybe there's a little reference to St. Patrick there, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Soon our mind will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. You see, Willard's point is that living in a constant state of awareness to and connection with God takes practice. And this is something I didn't get back then. And if I'm honest, I'm probably just starting to get now. This is what the spiritual disciplines or what are maybe perhaps better termed the practice of Jesus are for. So things like silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, reading the Bible, Sabbath. These are time-tested ways modeled by Jesus to abide in the vine. And it's interesting, Tara mentioned that earlier. We hadn't planned this. That's John 15 reference. I walk most mornings uh, first thing just around Lynchmere Common across the road. It's absolutely beautiful. And generally, I start my walk these days with a breathing prayer. don't know if any of you do that. Just as I breathe in, I'm, th- I'm saying, God, you're here. And as I breathe out, I'm saying, and I am here with you. No need to socially distance in that relationship. God, you're here. You've been here all along. You're always here. Your presence is constant. And I'm here with you. I'm consciously coming before you, entering your presence. Because before, maybe I haven't been here, certainly not with God. Maybe I've been distracted. I've been busy. I've been worrying about my to-do list. I've been looking at emails. But actually, I'm saying, God, now I'm turning my attention to you and focusing on your presence. So when I go back to my day and go back to my emails, I'm doing them together with you. So that's our first goal, to be with Jesus, and we're going to look at that in more detail next week. Second goal is to become like Jesus. This is uh, sometimes called sanctification, or maybe uh, nowadays it's often called spiritual formation. So what do we mean by that? Well, back to Dallas Willard. Uh, He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher And Robert Mulholland, an eminent professor of theology, uh, he defines uh, spiritual formation as the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. The experience of being shaped by God towards wholeness. You see, we're all being formed. We all have influences. So the question is not, 
are you being formed, but rather who is forming you, who's influencing you, who's shaping you, what choices are you making? I'm Northern Irish, so I have to get a C.S. Lewis quote in. Um, He says, every time you make a choice, you're turning that central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different to what it was before. So think about this. John Mark Comer asks, if you plot the arc of your character out five years from now, 10 years from now, even 20 years from now, who or what are you becoming? Are you becoming a little bit more like the characters in that box set you're watching or more like Jesus? Jesus expressed in your personality, your gender, your unique situation and context. So what does it look like to become like Jesus? Well, it's probably best summed up in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've time uh, later on today or or next week, uh, go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7 and have a read of the Sermon on the Mount to see how Jesus envisages it. And notice that it's not really about behavior. I'd say that pretty much all the Sermon on the Mount is about attitudes and heart. Jesus isn't just about behavior modification. He wants to transform you from the inside out. He doesn't want just for you to be the kind of person who doesn't kill or boil over with rage, but he wants you to be the kind of person with a depth of inner peace and purpose so that you can deal with stress or frustration or even betrayal with grace and with love. Maybe you want to be that kind of person too, but you're asking, how? Well, it takes teaching and practice in community with the help of the Holy Spirit over time. And that's going to be our focus here at Three Counties Church for the next while. So let's see, um, to recap, Uh, the goal of a disciple of Jesus is one, to be with Jesus, two, become like Jesus, and the third thing is to do what Jesus did. Um, So as we discovered earlier, the goal of the Talmudin is to ultimately do what the rabbi does. So our goal has got to be to do what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? Well, he did a lot of things, but here's some of the things that he did um, that really jumped out to me. Preaching the gospel, healing, sorry, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, working for justice, praying and eating and drinking with people far from God. If you're an apprentice of Jesus, you aim to be able to do everything that Jesus did. Not necessarily on day one or year one, but over time. For example, if if you are an apprentice to a plumber, I mean, your job isn't just to know about plumbing. So like on a dinner party, you can tell all your friends about plumbing and bore them to death. Your job is to be able to fix a leaky pipe or plumb a house. Your job's to actually do it. Our goal as disciples of Jesus is to do what he did. As John Wimber, who uh, founded the vineyard movement, used to say, when do we get to do the stuff, the, the stuff that Jesus did? And he also was really fond of the phrase, everyone gets to play. Because doing what Jesus did isn't just for like the vicars or the missionaries or the full-time staff or, or the leadership team or super spiritual people. It's for everyone. Everyone gets to join in. So let's just jump back, shall we, to the the passage in Mark 8. Um, Then he called the crowd to him 
along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, following Jesus doesn't work as a hobby, you know? I'm into mountain biking and I'm into Jesus. I mean, as good as mountain biking is, um, it just doesn't work that way. Following Jesus is an all or nothing thing. It's hard to follow Jesus if it's just an add-on to your life. In fact, in in my view, that's probably a one-way ticket to frustration and dissatisfaction. Following Jesus makes the most sense when it's the whole point of your life. And it doesn't mean you need to become a vicar or a full-time missionary or anything. But just whatever you do, wherever God's placed you as a teacher, civil servant, mechanic, pupil, whatever it is, you're following Jesus with everything you have. So Jesus' invitation to follow him, notice from the passage, it it wasn't just to the, the few. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple. So contrary to other rabbis who only let in the best of the best after a good grilling, actually Jesus' invitation was to everyone. He's saying it doesn't matter where you've come from, it doesn't matter how much you know, whether you can recite the whole Torah or the whole of the Old Testament, it doesn't matter what your work ethic's like, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've not done, it doesn't matter whether you've got your life together or not. Jesus' invitation to life and life to the full is to everyone. So this morning, you are invited into this life. And notice the literary device that Jesus used, that there's two groups of people here. There's the crowd and the disciples. The crowd, those who'd heard Jesus, maybe they were interested, they were checking him out, but actually they weren't his disciples yet. And then there were the disciples, not just the 12, but there were probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples up and down the country. Um, And Jesus' invitation was to discipleship. So as we embark on this journey of exploring what discipleship or apprentice to Jesus looks like, which camp are you in? Are you his disciple this morning? Is it your goal to be with him, to become like him and do what he does? Is that the main focus of your life, your top priority Or perhaps, are you in the crowd? You've heard his invitation to follow him. You've maybe taken a step or two, you're interested, but you haven't committed yourself yet. You may even call yourself a Christian, but he's not yet your top priority. Final quote from Dallas Willard. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, and boy, do we have a lot of heartbreaking needs in our world, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. John Mark Comer puts it this way, Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for apprentices to the kingdom of God. If you hadn't made, haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, can I encourage you to do this today if you are willing and ready? So simply pray to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. In fact, you might just want to pray this after me. Jesus, I turn from my own way and I choose to be your disciple. I choose to follow you with everything I've got. Amen. And if you've prayed that for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a long time, 
you may be someone that felt you were following Jesus, but actually, if you're honest with yourself over the last months or the last years, you haven't really, then, then do let us know. If you're in the building, come chat to me or somebody you know and trust here. If you're on the live stream, uh, the email address for the office should be coming up. Just email me there and say, Dave, I've decided to follow Jesus, and, and I'd love to celebrate with you. But here's the thing. The life Jesus has on offer, the kind of life where you love your enemy as your friend, where you're not racked by anxiety or greed, where you become part of a family, this kind of life, it won't just happen. You don't just come to church, you know, say a prayer, and suddenly you're Mother Teresa or Pete Gregg. It takes a life built around practice in community and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let me just share the four components as I, as I finish up that we're going to dig into this term. First, it involves teaching. So we're going to dig into uh, the, the way of Jesus, look at how he ordered his life and what people over the years and centuries have learned to try and understand that way of Jesus. It will involve practice. I didn't notice this till recently, but Jesus bookends the Sermon on the Mount with the idea of practice. He says, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a house built on a rock. So Jesus is assuming that the life he's calling to will take practice. And just so I'm clear, this isn't about trying. It's about training. What's the difference? Well, if my lovely wife, Rowena, decided that she wanted to run a marathon, I'm pretty sure she's not going to decide that. But imagine if she did and she decided to do it tomorrow she'd probably die. Because right at the moment, no matter how hard she tried, she's just not going to be able to run a marathon. But my wife is very wise, and I'm pretty sure she would not decide to do it tomorrow. If, if she did decide to run a marathon, she would probably decide to do it in six months or nine months or 12 months' time. And she would go online or go to a running shop and get a training program, and she'd start to run a quarter of a mile and a half a mile and a mile and two and five and over time, she would train, and she would watch her diet and eat the right things, and she would have people around her encouraging her. And over time, she would become the person with the capacity to run a marathon. So it's not about trying. It's about training. If you want to experience life to the full, life with God 24-7, every day, everywhere, if you want God to form your interior world with his value and his heart and have that spill over into your family and your friends and your workplace and your communities, it takes a lifetime of practice in community. That's the next thing. It's in community. So we're going to take this journey in community. It's one of the reasons we're launching small groups. So possibly next week or more likely the week after, uh, we want to launch small groups. We've already got some. If you're part of Thank God It's Friday or the Wednesday group or the Fernhurst group um, or Saturday Men, that's brilliant. But we want to launch another perhaps seven to ten uh, additional groups uh, so that we can give everyone a chance to join. And actually, if you're not in our, on our bulletin list, if you didn't get the bulletin from Sonia on Thursday, then, then do sign up again on the live stream. Uh, the email address for the office should appear. Just ping that email and say, please sign me up to the mailing list. I'd like to join a small group, and we'd love to give you that opportunity. 
So we're going to be allocating people to small groups initially. Um, and though, of course, you'll be free to, to change groups if, if a date doesn't suit or you feel a group isn't the right one for you. Some are going to be meeting by Zoom, others here physically in Hammer or in a local community uh, building. And the groups will be structured around geography as much as possible. They're going to be intergenerational. Um, so we can enable everyone to take part in this journey together. So we're very excited about what God's going to do through the small groups. And finally, and probably most importantly, we need the help of the Holy Spirit in order to access the kind of life Jesus offers. We can't transform our lives by ourselves, even with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, as Tara mentioned earlier, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do what he did, and see our communities transformed as well. So we're going to be learning about that and digging into that later this term. Let's pray, shall we? Maybe the band can come up as well. Father God, thank you that Jesus came and tabernacled himself, lived among us. And not only, Jesus, did you live and die for us, but you also set out a pattern by which we can live. Thank you that your call is to follow you, that that's a privilege. And Lord, would you help us wherever we are in our journey of faith, whether we're still in the crowd or whether we're early as a disciple or whether we've been on the road of discipleship for 60 or 70 or more years, help us to move on, to grow, to grow closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.